Reading from the book of Acts, chapter 25. Festus, then, after arriving in the province, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea three days later. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were pleading with Festus, requesting a concession against Paul that he might have him brought to Jerusalem, at the same time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody in Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, have the influential men among you go there with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, have them bring charges against him. After Festus had spent no more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered that Paul be brought. After Paul arrived, the Jews had come down from Jerusalem and stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have done nothing, I have done any, I have not done anything wrong either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, replied to Paul and said, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done nothing wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If, therefore, I am in the wrong and have committed something deserving death, I am not trying to avoid execution, but if there is nothing to the accusations which these men are bringing against me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. Now when several days had passed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived in Caesarea, paying their respects to Festus. And while they were spending many days there, Festus presented Paul's case to the king, saying, There is a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. And when I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I replied to them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any person before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. So after they had assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered that the man be brought. When the accuser stood up, they did not begin bringing any charges against him of crimes that I suspected, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. And being at a loss how to investigate such matters, 
I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered that he be kept in custody until I send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So on the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice came amid great pomp and entered the auditorium, accompanied by the commanders and prominent men of the city, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought before them. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all you gentlemen present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing deserving death, and since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my lord. Therefore, I have brought him before you and all, especially before, before you all and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems absurd to me to, in sending a prisoner not to indicate, indicate the charges against him as well. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and then we'll get into the word this morning. Father, through your Holy Spirit, you give us the word that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the words of Christ. May we hear your words this morning. May I speak clearly uh, what your word teaches, and may we hear uh, through the, the ears of faith that you give us through Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you've seen your bulletin, uh, the title for this morning's sermon is Missional Integrity. And as we're going through the book of Acts, we often uh, just hear from the pulpit make claims that the book of Acts is, is a kind of a model for how to do church, what Christian life should look like. Right? If, we, if you read the book of Acts and you think, well, that was like 2,000 years ago and they were, those were the apostles and they were cool dudes and they were great leaders and, uh, and that's... That was, those are really cool stories. Uh, now let's go and do church totally different. Then we're, we're definitely reading it wrong. We should be asking the question, the main question, is does our Christianity look like the book of Acts? And so um, as we're going through the, the book chapter by chapter, we're focusing or interpreting it through Acts 1.8, where Jesus says right before he ascends, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so the Christian life individually and corporately should be a life of power and a life of witnessing to Christ. If you want to boil it down to those two points, uh, you should be able to examine your individual life, your, your family life, our church life, to see if it is filled with power and if it is filled with being a witness to Christ. And we've talked about that in, in different aspects as we've seen in, in various chapters. And so what I want to bring out today in, in what we've really been focusing on the last, what I've been focusing on the last 10 or so chapters is what kind of culture are we building 
What kind of culture are we building in our families? What kind of culture are we building in our church that is a, a witness to Christ? Are we building a culture that is empowered by the Holy Spirit? Are we building a culture that is, is putting the deeds of the flesh uh, to death and living by resurrection power? And are we just simply living a life corporately that is a public witness to, uh, an accurate witness to, to Christ? And so our, I want to focus on uh, the whole chapter in Acts 25, verses 7 and 8, where Paul's on defense because if you, just to, uh, if you don't remember, if you haven't, don't remember contextually, Paul was going to Jerusalem. He had been, there had been a prophet that said, when you go there, you're going to get arrested and they're probably going to kill you. And he's like, well, sounds like a good time. <laughs> sounds like every other city. So let's just go. And uh, he did, he went way out of his way. He, uh, uh, I can't remember if it's in that instance, but I think he shaved the other disciples' heads that were with him as, in, as a Nazarite vow to show their purity and, and took very serious precautions to not offend the Jews in any way by, by going against the, the Jewish law and, and temple code. And I, I think his clear uh, motive there was to witness and, be, uh, and, and to win people to Christ, but he didn't really have an opportunity because as soon as he got there, they were like, uh, this guy's, we don't like this guy. This is Paul. He's in the temple, or he's kind of close to the temple, and, and a riot breaks out. And so they didn't have any real claims against him. They were just mad that he was there. And, and he went way out of his way to, to have integrity and to not offend, uh, to give way to the gospel. And so he gets essentially arrested the, the Roman standing army, sees the riot, they see that it's all focused on Paul, they bring him to the barracks. Paul's like, let me kind of talk to the people uh, that want to kill me. Sure, sounds like a good plan. And so he, uh, um, he's speaking publicly, but it doesn't get any better. And so Paul is now, um, he's been through the, the Jewish tribunal and, or the Jewish uh, kind of court system, and, and the Jews have a, uh, a kind of conspiracy to kill him, so they're sending him up to different Roman guards to see, like, what, what are we going to do with this guy? They really want to kill him. We got him in jail, and uh, we don't know, we don't even really know what he did, but we're going to keep him in jail. All right, let's just arrest him first, and then we'll figure out whether, what he did. And so he's getting sent to another, uh, he talked to Felix, now he's getting sent to Agrippa, and he's on trial, and his first offense is... Um, uh, Paul argues in his defense, and he says, uh, I'm sorry, start, let's start in verse 7 of 25. When, he, when Paul had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. That's what you want to be when you're, on, when you're on trial in any case. You want to have the charges against you, charges that they can't prove. right? And Paul argues in his defense, what he says is, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. And so it would be a much different story if he did, if he violated a, a temple law or if he really did something offensive to the Jews besides just being there, or if he had violated a Roman law. It would be a much different story from here on out because he would be tried for those charges and not for his innocence. And so God never promises us an easy life. He doesn't say if you, if you live with integrity and you do the right thing, your life's going to be pretty easy. And, uh, and if you preach the gospel, if you try to evangelize people, some of them will receive it and some of them won't, and, but, but people will be generally friendly to you. 
God says exactly the opposite in his word. If you just try to live a godly life, you will get persecuted. And so that looks different worldwide. Um, that, looks, that looks different in, in countries that are more hostile towards the gospel. Right? We don't have um, the kind of persecution that India has. We don't have that kind of persecution here in the States. But the, the principle regardless is if you just try to live a righteous and godly life, if you follow the law of God, if you, if you do it, then you're going to see persecution. You're going to see opposition. And so God never promises us a life free from trouble. And so um, what I want to focus on today is the missional integrity that God calls us to. And so regardless of whether we uh, you know, get names called or you know, there's, um, it's becoming more and increasing that you have a likelihood in certain circles to lose your job if you want to live a righteous life. If, if you take a job and you say, I can't work on Sundays because it's the Lord's day, then they're like, well, we just won't hire you. Or, or if you come to Christ and you have that, uh, that conviction, and you, might, you could lose your job. And there's tons of other things that God calls you to besides that, where it could be uh, just by living a righteous life, you could see opposition in, in the workplace, in your family, in your friend group, whatever. And so... The example we have in Paul is, and I want to bring out here, is that we should be able to stand in our integrity. Paul wasn't worried what the, the people he was preaching to, he wasn't worried about the false charges. He wasn't worried about the persecution. He had his confidence in the Lord. He knew he was going to stand before the Lord someday, and he was in, and the life here wasn't his, his total life, and he was going to uh, preach the word. He was going to do what he was called to do, and he was going to stand before God. And so um, I think there's two big problems that pervade our Western Christian thoughts. And so number one is that we're not looking for an opportunity to preach the gospel. We're not looking for opportunities to tell others about Christ. We, um, and I say we, I, I'm saying us corporately, and, and uh, you can see it in the Western Christian culture is we're not looking for opportunities to share Christ with our coworkers, with our friends, with our family. Um, it's a, a general rule you kind of see in, in churches, uh, maybe even including ours, that it's the pastor's job or it's people who are specially called to go out to the streets and evangelize. But that's not what Scripture tells us. He tells us that everyone is to make disciples. Everyone's called to make disciples. Everyone's called to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's not, um, it's not just for certain individuals. And so the first big problem that pervades our thoughts is that we're not looking for opportunities. And so in, in past kind of chapters of Acts, I've kind of focused on we have a corporate witness today when we just sing and we gather on Sunday morning and maybe it's just a, a witness. The only people that really notice are our neighbors who could hear us. But, uh, but anybody who drives, it is a, just a witness to be here on Sunday mornings. We have a, a corporate witness, you know, that's more public when we do our church picnic and it's more public because it's outside and, and people see the bouncy house and that's a public witness, a bouncy house. And, uh, but we have a more public witness the more we go outside, but, um, but we have a witness corporately here. We have a, a witness corporately as we disperse through the week, right? We... Um, you know, since the Reformation and since 
there's so many various churches. We just live in a culture where when people ask you, you're, you know, or when you tell people you're a Christian, one of the first one or two answers or questions you'll get is like, what church do you go to? And so then you're putting your name on corporately out there. We're putting us, our name corporately out there. And so we have to have the thought that we are corporately going out on mission. Every, from Monday to Saturday, we're out on mission. We're out to make disciples. We're out to honor Christ. Uh, and that should be a huge portion of our prayer life, huge portion of our thought of what is God doing here? Is this an opportunity for me to, to talk to Christ? Is this an opportunity for me to invite this, this, this coworker or this family member or friend or whatever uh, at an appropriate time out to, to share the gospel with them or, or whatever? And so the second problem we have, which I'm focusing on today, is far too many Christians blow their witness by their actions, right? Um, ever since Genesis, in the first couple chapters of Genesis, God's calling humans made in his image to be his vice regents, meaning that God pours out and, and uh, that God's plan and exercise and purpose over all creation is given to us to exercise on the creation. And so that's what it means to have dominion. And it comes a little bit more clear as you go through just the first few chapters. You get to Genesis 12 where Abraham is called, where he says he's going to make him a great nation. Well, a nation is a people group that have a, a representative government and, and culture and hierarchy and laws and, uh, and way of life. And through that nation that he's creating, that they are going to bless the entire earth. And we understand that in the new covenant that has been, uh, the Israel was foreshadowed, I don't want to say replaced, because I think that's a misnomer, uh, or transferred, because that's also a misnomer. But it was the, Israel was a shadow of what we have in the church, that we are God's special treasure. We are his holy nation. And every nation, every people group through the earth will be blessed through the church. Because we have his word, because we have his laws, because we have his spirit. Right, And so we blow that witness, even when we have opportunities to witness, we blow it by our actions. We blow it a lot of times. And so um, you've heard maybe the phrase that like, Christians aren't perfect, we're just forgiven. Right? Well, that's, that's technically true. I'm not perfect. I'm not saying anybody in this room is perfect. At least nobody I see uh, is perfect. And, and we are forgiven, but we use that that phrase has been used as an excuse to, to swipe across uh, our unholiness that we don't really have to be holy. We don't really have to honor God and his law. We don't really have to do what he says. We don't really have to try that hard because we're just forgiven. Right? The only difference between me and a Buddhist is, is I'm just forgiven. I can do whatever I want. And the Buddhist can't because he doesn't have Christ. But when he accepts Christ, then he can do whatever he wants. <laughs> right? That's not what, we're, that's not what Christ says. That's not what God makes clear in his word. And so we blow it many times just by our integrity, by our own character, by our own actions. And so building culture is important because we are a much greater light together, right? You're, um, you can go out and evangelize or you could be your own personal witness is a light. Christ calls us lights and salt of the earth, which we'll look at here in a second. But then you in the next sphere in your family is a greater light, Right? People who know you and know your family, they see how uh, your household worships or how they handle various things. And the integrity in life you live is a greater worship or a greater witness. And then how 
and, and that's, um, that could be easily dismissed by individuals. You know, it's a lot easier too because, of, well, that's just this person and that's just that family and that's how they do things. But when a community of families is together, we are a greater light, right? How we, the integrity and character and how we act is in, and the culture we build is an even greater light that should affect our city, state, and even the nation we're in. And which, uh, just look at Catherine's announcement. Go back there. We could be a greater light. And so Christ lays this, this precedent on the Sermon on the Mount of what he's calling us to in, in building culture in salt and light. Matthew 5, 13 through 16 says, you, all, or you, you are the salt of the earth, but the salt has lost its taste. How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Oh man, I wish he told us how. I really wish, oh. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Christ directly relates here on the Sermon on the Mount your shining light to your good works, how you act, how you live, what you're doing. And I wish he just explained us what we could do. Like I wish there was something like a, a book we could read or something. But he goes on you're in luck. He does go on to explain it. Exactly how you're going to be light and exactly how you're going to be salt. Exactly how you're going to change cultures. Exactly how you're going to be a witness. After explaining that, uh, I'm skipping verses, uh, whether that be 17 through about 23, where he says that I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He says, uh, everything in the Old Testament, just don't throw it out yet. And he tells you, how are you going to build culture? How are you going to be a light? How are you going to be a witness? Uh, control your anger. Control your words. Don't be calling people fools, right? Uh, James says, I think James even uses stronger words when he says, if you can't control your words, your religion is worthless. So ask yourself, can you control your words? If the answer is no, then your religion is worthless, right? That's step one, right? Control your words. And I think that goes both ways. That's easily seen in, uh, I usually put it on, on men because there's angry men and men are, men's sins are just way more visible. Women's are a little, a little harder to find, but they're, they're there, trust me. And, <laughs> and but uh, I kind of characterize it by like men who are like angry, like in, and just shout or something. That's very visible. Yeah, you should refrain from your words, but I think that it goes the opposite too. When you are, are when you should speak and you don't because you're timid, that's not controlling your words. That's showing that you're not in control, that either your emotions are on either end of that spectrum, right? So control your words. Be in control. Control your lusts. Right? Jesus says that if you lust after a woman, it's adultery in your heart, and it's better to cut your hand off than, and enter heaven, enter the kingdom of God with one hand, than hell with two. That's pretty serious. Right? Control your lusts. Stay faithful to your spouse, is the next thing he says. Do what you say. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you say you're going to do something, do it. We ruin our witness as Christians 
by saying something or promising something and then backtracking out of it and, or making excuses and, and not being honest, right? Then he goes on, says, uh, don't retaliate. And he kind of sums up this section by not retaliating against evil people, right? But love and pray for them. I'm sorry, then there's one more about being generous, right? Be generous. And so this is how Jesus, after in the Sermon of the Mount, lays out how your, this missional integrity that the church is supposed to have. Start with these things, right? Look at yourself. Look at, examine your life. These things are given in Scripture so that you could not put them on, on your spouse or your children, but first so you could look in the mirror more clearly, right? And if you're lacking in everything, it's, you have to call out to God. And so Jesus sets the precedent that you need to practice what you preach, right? We all believe that, right? Not, I mean, all people believe that. Uh, that's not like a new revelation, right? But it's the, whether we have the power to or not, Right? Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye. Then you can take the speck out. He talks about the blind, about the uh, hypocrisy of the Pharisees, the blind leading the blind. And uh, what I love in, as in, in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 23, when Jesus is right about, he's in the temple, he's right about to give like these seven or eight woes to the Jews, to the Pharisees about what they've been doing. He pulls his disciples aside and he tells them, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat so do and observe what they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but do not practice. And so we know this intrinsically, that we should practice what we preach. The biggest, the failure of the Israelites throughout the Old Testament is that they didn't practice what they preach. They, and then they, oh, well, then they didn't practice anything godly for various periods of time, but but they weren't um, apprehending, and, and they weren't being, as corporate Israel wasn't being a light based on their actions. And so, uh, look at 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So we should be, no, that's, this wasn't given to the apostles, this wasn't given to just church leaders, this was given to uh, the church, the people, right? You should be ready. You should be able to clearly explain the gospel. You should be able to clearly uh, explain the hope you have within you. And I'm not going to tell you how you should do that in one form or another method or whatever, but just that you should be prepared. That's what Peter in, in this epistle is calling us to. Be prepared to make a reasoned defense. But do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And so if you live a life that's becoming of a Christian, and if you have opportunities and look for opportunities and pray for opportunities to be on the mission that Christ has sent us to and, and preach the gospel to people, you will be slandered. You need thick skin. They're, gonna, uh, they're not going to speak kindly of you. And who cares is essentially the Bible's answer. But he, he says, make sure that those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And so there's a level of integrity and character here and godliness that is a witness that we, that we, we can't negate, right? That we, um, 
that if we're looking for opportunities and our lives aren't matching, then our, whatever we're, we're preaching, whatever gospel we're telling, is probably just going to be thrown out the window. And I think the scriptures give us evidence to say that those people have the right to do that because of your life, right? And so if it was only words, we'd be no different than, than anybody else, right? If it was only just the ability to preach the gospel and tell people the good news and the good news was just the good news, we wouldn't, we'd just be like every other religion and there'd be no power. But the difference is that we do have resurrection power. God doesn't call us to live a life of, of godliness and holiness because maybe if you just like set the bar a little higher, we'll get a little bit closer and, and maybe some of us will make it, hopefully. That's not what God's hope is. He gives us the spirit. It's the crux of the New Testament that you are able to put to death the deeds of the flesh and you are able to obey God's law, obey his word. And so that is the crux of the New Testament, that we're empowered by the Spirit. This is part of the mission of what Christ came for. And so as, as Josiah has been um, speaking in our, in our kind of like a vision casting series on what's the vision of Grace Christian Fellowship, he's been talking about uh, a covenantal view of Scripture. And that's the view that the covenants in the Bible are, are cohesive and not divided. Meaning that our scriptures, all of the Bible is cohesive. It fits together. It's not divided like this was the Old Testament, this is the New Testament. This was like the Abrahamic covenant, and that's really different from the Noahic covenant, right? We don't see the scriptures as saying anything like that, but that they're totally cohesive and that they build on one another and they do not negate each other. And so in Exodus and Deuteronomy, when it calls us, when it calls Israel to be a holy nation and a treasured possession of the Lord, that we're going to do it. That, that's, that's our mission, right? And so we're not on mission alone. We're supposed to be lights together. And so when Paul makes that statement that neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense, he's claiming innocence on all accounts, right? And that's the type of life we should be looking to live. That's what missional integrity looks like. I don't think he would have a platform for the gospel if he was like, well, I, I did cheat Caesar like a lot of money. Uh, they probably wouldn't be concerned about what the Jews were claiming. They'd be like, well, we're going to get our tax money. We're going to get, uh, or if he had violated any other law, uh, he wouldn't have that platform, right? He's innocent on all accounts, and he wouldn't have a platform uh, for the gospel otherwise. And so, Paul speaks specifically on this type of hypocrisy in Romans and uh, on the hypocrisy of not practicing what you preach. He says, he's quoting um, one of the prophets, says, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And so God's name is blasphemed when Christians don't act in, in godly character, right? Um, and so there aren't, in our, in our culture, there aren't a lot of uh, employers out there saying, we just need more Christians to work for us because they're honest, they're hardworking, and, and they, they're just the best workers, right? There, aren't, uh, there isn't a wave of, and a movement in the economy that says, we need more Christian workers. Where do we get them? Let's go to the churches and try to employ people because they're the most, have the most integrity, they're the hardest working, they're honest, and they're diligent, Right? They're not doing that because as a culture, as a Christian culture, we're not. 
but we're called to. There aren't a lot of worldly people looking for Christian counselors because they have more wisdom and insight, or they know how to fix marriages, or they know how to fix addictions and, and problems. Uh, there are Christian counselors, and there are Christians looking for Christian counselors, which is appropriate, but the world isn't coming to us to solve their issues because they see our lives, they see our godliness, they see our marriages, they see our vocational work ethic, they see uh, our mental health, right? They're not streaming, the, the world isn't streaming to the church because uh, we claim to have the answers and we live it, Right? Uh, people aren't out there looking for Christian mechanics because they're the most honest. Now, you might find a, a, a mechanic that is Christian and, uh, or, or a mechanic that is honest, and you find out that he's Christian later. But people aren't out there saying, man, I've got to find a Christian mechanic because I know he's going to be honest. I know he's, gonna, he's not going to charge me over. Right? We, we, as a Christian culture, and what God is calling us to, calling Grace Christian Fellowship to, is to have that missional integrity is to be the people of God who live what we preach, right? Um, stay in Romans. Look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or, or your reasonable worship. Do not be conformed to this world. So those are, these are your options. Uh, worship God, or your reasonable worship to God, or be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, or what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so he's saying there your life is a lifestyle of reasonable worship. What am I doing Monday through Sunday, Sunday through Saturday, that is my reasonable worship, going to work, working hard, loving my spouse, raising my kids, not complaining, being faithful, right? All these are your reasonable worship, whatever station of life God has for you. That's what it is. It's not just be a living sacrifice on Sundays and not just when you feel like it. Uh, I wish it was sometimes, but, but it's not. And so your reasonable worship is, and it starts with not being conformed to the world, right? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As Christians, we're supposed to examine our lives and see where the law of God, where his, his moral code, where his standards and ethics apply to every area of life. And so we should be regularly sitting down, reading the scriptures in a way that says, does my life match this? And if it doesn't, what is God calling me to? Right? That's what missional integrity is. Look at... Uh, Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do, in word or deed, that's every aspect of life, we as Christians are pushing out the law of God and the character into every aspect of our life, to every corner of our life. Everything you do in word or deed, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so that goes... Uh, and what I'm trying to bring out in, in these verses and with, with Paul is that we have to examine our lives. We have to use the scriptures as a mirror and primarily, uh, as I explained, maybe it was last week or, or a couple weeks ago, the moral code is summed up in the Ten Commandments. 
And then you have in Exodus and in Deuteronomy and in large parts of Leviticus, actually in Numbers, uh, case laws that help you explain that. What it means to honor your father and mother. What it means to not steal. What it means to not commit adultery. What it means to honor the Lord's day. Or to, or to remember the Sabbath. What it means to put God first and to love people. And so we have to, we can't do it all from the pulpit. You guys have to be in, empowered to be able to see that in the scriptures, to be able to open it up and say, and sit down with your family, sit down whatever station you're in and say, hey, let's read this, let's study this. How, what is God calling us to? How would we handle this situation? Right, I love um, being able to uh, pick up my daughter from school and we talk about it in the car and, and we'll, we'll do it over dinner and talk about our day and when there's like, well, this girl did this and this girl, okay. Well, what does God require of us? right? And, and there should be, that's what family dinners, I think, are for, is kind of discussing the day and, and not just for the fellowship and for the food. You need both of those. But to able to, uh, to speak into one another's life on, on issues of this is what God's law calls us to do. This is what we should do. Do you need to uh, ask for forgiveness? Do you need to uh, just let this one go? What do you need to do? And, and so we're called as Christians to, to live a life that we, if, even if we were on trial, we would stand in, in full integrity and say, I have committed no wrong. I haven't done anything wrong, right? That, that sounds like a high calling, because it is. That sounds nearly impossible. Uh, and you get the example that, well, that's just Paul's testimony. I mean, he knew that these people would have gotten offended, and he went there anyways. And that's not the issue, right? That wasn't a wrong. And so it wasn't just Paul's claim that these people would be offended. And it's not just his claim to innocence. David uh, praised the same thing in the Psalms, that, that I'm innocent. Why are these people fleeing? Why are these people trying to attack me? Why are they trying to hurt me, right? And he praised that, like, Lord, if I've been uh, in, in multiple psalms, he, he prays in a way that says, if I've, if, if I've done no wrong, then smash them. But if I have, smash me. And so the promise we have in the new covenant is, is what Jesus said, that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon us. And so as we kind of go into our, our call to the table, look back, lastly, at Romans 12, when he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. We're not, Christ isn't calling us to do this and just try harder. He does say we have to live in such a way that we would discern what is the perfect will of God and live that way. But it's not by trying harder. It's not by uh, grasping at it, at it more and just putting in more time and more effort. Will it take time and effort? Yeah, sure. But it's by the mercies of God. We're called to, we receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon us to, to not just be witnesses and, and, and speak the gospel like we're drawing out of, out of uh, Acts 1.8, but to live a life that is a witness that we could moment by moment, day by day, situation by situation, grab a hold of the mercies of God, get filled with the Spirit, and crucify the flesh, 
We can crucify our lust. We can crucify, cry, crucify our tongue. We can stay faithful. We, we could be generous, right? All those things that Christ covers right there in the Sermon of the Mount. And so he offers this to us freely. He gives it to us. He pours it out generously. He is not stingy. He withholds it. That's what we remember in the table is as, as we come that we are, there is some real type of grace that we get. It's not just a, a visual reminder. It is a visual reminder that in, invokes faith in us, but we really do get some type of grace when we come to the table and we cry out to mercy. We cry out in faith that we need it. We don't look at the uh, list of, of character traits and um, things on the Sermon on the Mount and be like, yeah, that's, I got this. Sure. Sure. Uh, that would be your famous last words. Uh, we don't look at it like that. You can't look at it like that. You look at that and you say, wow, who, you know, when the Jews in the Old Testament, when Israel in the Old Testament saw the Ten Commandments and the, and the covenant, they said, oh, we'll just do it all. Every word that you speak, we will do. You ever read the Ten Commandments? Like, yeah, uh, that was a, you, they did not let their yes be yes and their no be no. Uh, you should look at that, what God's calling you to, this missional integrity, this life worthy of, of proclaiming the gospel, and you should say, wow, Lord, I need your spirit, I need grace. And so come to the table and let's dine with Christ.